You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. So we'll be in James chapter 1. Uh, we've been working through the book of James this fall. Uh, we're going like super slow. We went uh, the, this past spring, we went through the book of Genesis and we were doing big chunks at a time, big stories at a time. Now we're going really, really slow through the book of James, just wringing out every bit of nourishment and encouragement and challenge that we can from this book. We're calling our series Living Faith. What does it look like to have a faith that is alive, like visibly alive in the world? And, uh, and we're pausing here for a few weeks on James 1, verses 26 and 27, as James ends his introduction to the book and begins to unfold these themes more fully that he's introduced to us in the first chapter. Uh, I, I preached a message last week on verses 26 and 27, but also just thought as I looked at this series, it'd be good to pause because there's some really big statements in, this, uh, in these couple of verses that are worth sitting, um, sitting down and uh, pondering for just a few moments. And so let me read James 1, 26 and 27. I think it's on the screen here as well. If you have your Bible open, that would be great. Um, and here's what the Word of the Lord says as James concludes his first chapter of the book. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So that's a big statement. All of the religious things that you can think that people do in all types of different religions, like all of the external acts and rituals and habits and traditions that people do to show their allegiance to God and to a worldview, Um, And he talks about in verse 26, like we talked about last week, that there is a kind of religious activity that's worthless, even among the people of God that's worthless. It just doesn't have any value to God, to people, to the individual that's doing it. And that's one that's just purely talk, that doesn't bridle the tongue. That person's faith is worthless. That person's religion is worthless. And then we get this massive statement in verse 26 that's just packed full of meaning. This is just such a compressed verse. Um, because there's so much that he's drawing on, James is drawing on when he makes these statements. Religion that is pure and defiled before God. This is what God loves to see. The external actions of devotion and ritual and tradition that God loves to see, finds no fault in, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So I think, it, I think it's wise for us to spend just a, a, a sermon on each of those three statements, to visit orphans in their affliction today, next week to look at what it means to visit widows in their affliction, and then in two weeks from now to keep oneself unstained from the world. Because so that, That's packing in a huge theme throughout the Scriptures, and I think it's just worth our time to spend uh, looking at each one of those themes. So the title of our message today is Visiting Orphans in Affliction. What does that look like? And I really want to answer three questions today, okay? First question is this, is visiting orphans in affliction really that important to God? Okay, probably already tipping my hand on the answer, but I'd like to walk you through the answer because it's not unclear in the Bible of what God thinks about this. Second question I want to answer is, is visiting orphans in affliction really central to Christianity? Is it just something that only those that are like specifically called to it or is it actually a feature of Christianity? Like this is actually part of, the, part of the deal that when you follow Jesus, this is part of the deal. Not an add-on, 
But this is actually part of the heart of Christ. Is, is this actually central to what Christians are and do and be in the world? And then the last question we'll ask is, what are some ways that we can visit orphans in their affliction here in Rapid City in 2022? And I have my friend Damon who will come up and do that part of it uh, from Kids Belong and just talk really practically about what some of the needs are here. And so let's first look at God's heart. God's heart. Is visiting orphans in affliction really that important to God? Is this really? Is James telling us the truth that this is the kind of religion, this is the kind of external action that God always finds beautiful and receives it with joy? First of all, we see that uh, in, the, in the Old Testament that it's commanded in the Old Testament law. So when God called His people to be a distinct people and He put them in a land that is the crossroads of three continents, the nation of Israel, the three continents, Europe, Asia, Africa, He puts His people in the very center of that and they're to be distinct. They're to be totally different from the rest of the world. Their allegiance to Yahweh and the fact that everyone's going to have to pass through them, they're going to be literally like a city on a hill. And one of the things that he bakes into the law of how their culture is going to reflect the goodness of God is by how they care for widows and orphans. And there's just a ton of texts here. Uh, Exodus 22, verses 22 through 24 says this. Now remember, this is that God has brought his people out of, the, out of slavery in Egypt. And now he's starting to give them his law in the second half of Exodus chapter 22. And here's what he says. He says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. All right, God's pretty clear. I'm, <laughs> I'm laying down the law here. What happens then is that God's people grumble against God and he says, fine, I'm going to have you wander for 40 years in the desert before I bring you into this special land. And before they go into this special land, they're given the law again. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy is called second law. That means second law. And before the people go in and become the people of God in the place that God promised them so long ago, he repeats the law to them. And it's over and over. You see in Deuteronomy, I think if you could go back just a slide for, just look at how many times in the book of Deuteronomy the care for widows, orphans, and the foreigner are brought up. Like it's not a small theme in the law of what God's people are supposed to be like as they enter the land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27, as we get to the end of the book, the people are to, to verbally agree to God's standards here. As God gives the law, they're reciting it phrase by phrase, and the people are to answer amen as they go through these different... It's almost like a, like a covenant. It's a, it is a covenant. It's the terms of the covenant. And they're to verbally, every single person that's gathered hearing the teaching of this law is to verbally agree that yes... This isn't just the responsibility of us as a people, but this is a responsibility of me. I'm verbally saying amen to this. And look at verse, chapter 27, verse 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say amen. All of God's people as they entered the kingdom were to go, no, this is our responsibility. These there is justice that is due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow from God. And I'm to honor that. And I, not just as a nation, but as an individual, are to take interest in that. We also see that not only is this commanded in the Old Testament law over and over again, but as the people move into the, into the, the, um, into the promised land and become God's people, we see that throughout Old Testament poetry, it's celebrated. The idea that God cares about the widow and the orphan. 
In fact, in Job, it comes up again and again because Job's friends are accusing Job of mistreating widows and orphans. Like maybe the reason God has taken out your family and maybe the reason that God is punishing you is that you have mistreated widows and orphans. And then again and again, they accuse him of this. And eventually, Job just gets so frustrated because this is not what has happened. But really, like the idea that, that overlooking widows and orphans would be a punishable offense in their eyes, right? To where this is a regular argument until finally Job gets to this point in Job chapter 31, verses 16 through 22. Remember, he's lost everything. He's got sores. Even his wife has turned on him. His friends have turned on him. And they're all pointing the finger at him that maybe you've mistreated widows and orphans. You've overlooked them. And here's what Job says. Look what he says in Job 31. If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, meaning if I have had a seat at the table, at my table, and I didn't fill it with someone who was needy, that's kind of the idea there. If I'd eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it, and from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's wound I got, womb I guided the widow. I, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if this body has not blessed me, if it has not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder. And let my arm be broken off from its socket. If my hands weren't generous, like consistently generous for my whole life, like if you can find an accusation that I have been ungenerous, then may these hands fall off. Right? You just see how important this is in the Old Testament poetry. Look at Psalm 68. This was our call to worship this morning. Sing to God. Sing praises to Him. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. We also, so we see it's commanded in the Old Testament law. It's celebrated in Old Testament poetry, and it's condemned when it's absent in the Old Testament prophets. Let me have you just turn for just a moment to Isaiah chapter 1. If you do have your Bibles, I'm going to read a good chunk of it because this is a massive prophet in the Old Testament. Isaiah is a major prophet. And look at how he starts off this massive book. Like Isaiah is one of the most important books in the Old Testament, if you were to rank them. But it's full of so much prophecy. It's full of so much. You could almost get the whole Bible story just in Isaiah. And it's just amazing to me. This was stunning when I studied this, Isaiah chapter 1, of what Isaiah has to say to the people of God. As they're rebelling, they're going against God's law, and Isaiah is sent to confront them and comfort them at the same time. And here's what it says. I'm just going to read a chunk of it because it's pretty jarring in and of itself. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know and my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. 
It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth and vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Of the Lord of hosts, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil from, of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do good. Learn to do, just, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. That's where he stops. You have all this, like, I'm tired of your worship. I'm tired of your sacrifices if it doesn't include justice for the widow and orphan. Just stop. Like, I'm just done with that. And then he gives these sweet words. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and you, and you rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Then he goes on to give them another indictment about this very same thing. And so we get the sense that God is paying attention to that very need and their falling short of it is of great offense to him. So we get this really jarring statement and it's all throughout the prophets. Malachi 3.5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So he puts that neglect of those folks in the same category as sorcerers and adulterers. Like, this is a big deal to God. And then ultimately in the New Testament, we see that adoption is a picture of our salvation. John 14, 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. It's in Galatians 8, over and over, Galatians 9, Galatians 4, 4, 4 and 5, which is going to be the theme of our Christmas series, is this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's at the heart of the gospel, is that we are spiritual orphans without a father. And God sent his Son into the orphanage of the world, right? The streets of the world, and called to himself a people, to give them his name, died on the cross for their sins, rose again from the dead, that they might become sons, that they might receive adoption. It's in Ephesians 1, and obviously we see in James 1, 27. So, is visiting orphans in affliction really that important to God? I, I don't think how you could say anything but yes. Like at the very heart of God is that. Because we are orphans, and he sent his son to come, that we might be adopted. So question number two, is visiting orphans really central to Christianity? Like, is this really like part of who we are, or is this just sort of a thing that was just for Israel? 
And I would say that as we look at the early church and their understanding of those first Christians who were filled with the Spirit and beginning to engage in the world, what did it look like? So I want to just take a quick moment and look at the early church and how they understood their calling. Coming out of the Old Testament and now in the New Covenant with the Spirit and uh, post-resurrection of Jesus, did the early church see the care for orphans and the widow and the needy, did they see that as sort of like an add-on that only the super-Christians do? Or did they see it as a feature? Like this is part of a Christian's responsibility of all Christians. In the early church, in the book of Acts, in the epistles, we see that there's a call to countercultural, selfless care for the needy. Just across the board. That's right out of the very gate. The early church, everyone gave what they had so that no one had needs. It was one of the features of that first church. And throughout the epistles, you see that being a call to be generous to care for one another, to look out for one another. And we know that in the first century, the first few centuries of, of, of the Roman Empire, um, there were the Christ, not only was there a massive need, was there a massive orphan problem in the first century, but there also the Christians were especially impoverished. We saw that in verse 1 of James, right? To the people that are scattered. The Christians were particularly impoverished in that time, and at the same time, the needs of orphans and widows were even higher than they are now. In the Roman Empire, one estimate is that 45% of children age 14 had, had lost their father. So 45% of teenage kids were without a father. So the Roman Empire, every other kid, basically, is an orphan. And then by the age 25, 70% had lost their dad. So the idea that you have your dad around a lot, and in that male-dominated culture, that meant provision, that meant sustenance, that meant protection... Five reasons why the, uh, the orphan crisis was so stark in those days was one, poor health care. Two, low, low life expectancy, which was around 42. Life expectancy is about 42 in the first century-ish, first few centuries. The uh, war, war took out a lot of men in these days. The marriage age of men and women, men typically didn't get married until maybe close to 30. Women would be married close to their mid-teens. And if the life expectancy is 42, then there's a good chance that you're not going to grow up with your father in the home. Those aren't hard and fast rules. But if you apply that to Jesus for a second, we see Jesus' dad, Joseph, disappear after he's age 12. Well, if, he's a typical, if it's a typical marriage, Mary's probably 14, 15 when they get married. Joseph's probably close to 30. And if he's just an average guy, he's dead by the time Jesus hits his teenage years, potentially. Right? So people are growing up, there's, there's a massive orphan need at the time. Also, abortion and exposure were incredibly common. Um, exposing a child was thought to be the best way of saving an infant from a life of impoverishment or disability. So if you had an undesirable child, often females, females were not considered to be as, as valuable as women, so you would throw them in exposure, just leave them out for the animals, for them to just starve or die in the ditches was pretty common in those days. And if you had a child you couldn't care for, there's no social welfare system. There's no foster care system. You just leave them out to die. What does it matter? It was common for children to be exposed in places. If you were compassionate, you would leave your baby in some place where maybe someone would pick it up. Those who were exposed in the first century faced three fates, death, Slavery or prostitution, because you can pick up these girls and if you nourish them, you've got a revenue stream because you can pimp them out. Slavery and prostitution. Or the third thing was Christian adoption. 
It was a special feature of the Christians is that they would go scoop up the babies. They would go scoop up the babies. And then what's amazing is a couple generations later, who has all the women? The Christians. So then these pagan men are looking for women, and guess what? Their Christian wives witness to them, and you begin to see that the, Christian, the Christians actually play the long game. They, take, they pay the price early on of caring for a needy child, right? But then in the, in the long run, they flip the whole Roman Empire to be largely Christian by the time Constantine comes around. How'd they do that? Well, they have all the girls. <laughs> it's hard for a society to move on without women, right? It's just amazing. One of the things, I looked at some early, uh, some early sources from the early church, so I like to go to, first, um, to primary sources, and one of the things that Christians did is they often saw care for widows and orphans as a bit of a test of orthodoxy. There were a lot of heresies that were, began to pop up in the first, second, well, really largely the second century, and one of the ways you could tell heretical teaching was the fruit it produced, and if it didn't produce fruit of the love of widows and orphans, then it was probably suspect. That wasn't the only test, but it was a test. Um, Ignatius, in 110, was writing to the church at Smyrna, and here's what he said. He says, Now note well, note well those who hold heretical opinions about the grace of Jesus Christ. Note how contrary they are to the mind of Christ. They have no concern for love. They have none for the widow, none for the orphan, none for the oppressed, none for the prisoner, or the one released, none for the hungry or thirsty. Heretical teaching does not produce compassion for widows and orphans. Only the true gospel does that. So that's what Ignatius said. Is like, okay, don't just look at the teachings, look at the fruit of their teachings. And if it doesn't include widows and orphans, you should, you should doubt their teaching. Uh, from the Apology of Aristides the Philosopher in AD 125, here's what he said about true Christians. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another, and from widows, they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats them harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. That was a mark of the true Christians. Aristides the philosopher said, look, you can tell their profession is true. Look at what they do. They take in the widows and the orphans. Look at what the heretics do. They don't take in the widows and orphans. Easy, clear, practical dividing line between orthodoxy and heresy was what fruit that gospel produced. It also, in the early church, was a test of spiritual leadership. Here's what Polycarp says to the Philippians in AD 110. He says, The presbyters, or elders, or pastors, for their part, they must be compassionate, they must be merciful to all, turning back those who have gone astray, visiting all the sick, not neglecting a widow, orphan, or poor person, but always aiming at what is honorable in the sight of God and of people. So, don't really consider someone for elder or pastor unless they have a demonstrated track record of caring for those that are the least of these. Mid-2nd century, Justin Martyr says this about an early Christian worship service. After recounting how believers celebrated the Lord's Supper, he explained what happened next. Here's what he said, quote, And those who are well off and are willing to do so give as much as each desires, and the money is then collected and deposited with the bishop, who takes care of the orphans and widows. And those who are in straits through sickness or any other cause, and those in prison and other visitors from other parts, in short, he looks after all who are in need. It was a mark of spiritual leadership, a requirement of spiritual leadership. Third century document known as the Discalia Apostolorium. I don't know if I said that right. You don't care. You can Google it. But 
It lays out this criteria for selecting an elder or a presbyter. One of the requirements on the list is that the candidate must be known as a father to orphans. A lover of toil, a lover of widows, a lover of orphans. That's the quote. That was one of the requirements in the first few centuries of someone who was going to be in spiritual leadership. Do they take in? Do they care? Do they engage the least of these? Also, in the early church, the fact that the, the body was going to take care of widows and orphans was meant to be an encouragement to martyrdom. So one of the things you're concerned about is that if you have a family and you're now being, told, being asked, are you a Christian? And you know that you might get put to death for that. You might be torn, away, torn up in the Colosseum. You might be burned to death. You might be... One of the encouragements was like, don't deny Christ. We promise we'll take care of your kids. That was a real thing. Like they, in their gatherings, in their Lord's Day gatherings like this, they had to have conversations like that. Hey, if you die this week, like getting torn by lions, just know we got you. We will make sure your kids are taken care of. We will make sure that your kids have a home. Among Christian orphans, those of martyrs were regarded as a priority. And Lactantius argues that concern for the fate of one's children should not be a deterrent to martyrdom. For martyrs can be confident that their loved ones will be cared for. One third century indication of this was found in the Passion of Perpetua and Felicity. You should Google that sometime. The story just always blows my mind every time. It records the martyrdom of Perpetua, a 22-year-old noblewoman, and her slave, Felicity. Felicity is pregnant at the time when she's arrested and later gives birth to the baby in prison. They just slip the baby through the bars to the church. And then they both get torn apart in the Colosseum by wild beasts. And it says this, the text says that a sister reared Felicity's daughter as her own, which almost certainly would be a Christian sister. Isn't that amazing? So that was part of the early church conversation is that if you die for the faith, just know we're going to take care of your kids. That was a guarantee. We're not just going to take care of those kids out there. No, we're going to take care of the kids here. A 4th century document known as the Apostolic Constitution states that whenever a Christian youth becomes an orphan, he or she should be adopted by one of the brethren, this is the quote, one of the brethren, for they which do perform a great work and become fathers to orphans and shall receive the reward of this charity from the Lord God. If we fast forward later to the gospel recovery at the Reformation, there was also a recovery of a care for orphans in many ways. Martin Luther married Katerine Van Bora, a former nun who had helped escape from a Cistercian convent. What a romantic story of a priest and a nun running off and getting married. They have, uh, what, four children? They have six children by birth. They also adopted four more who had lost their mother in the plague. And they eventually took in seven more orphaned nieces and nephews. John Calvin, like Luther, his decision to marry was not as, over, as particularly romantic. Calvin was a pretty straightforward guy, but he married a woman by the name of Idolette, and she had two children. Her husband had died away. She, she was a, a widow. Um, she bore him three children, which all died in infancy, and then she died nine years into their marriage, and he took in those children that were not his own, but he cared for them. And then there was also, I'm kind of summarizing here, he wrote, writes to his friend Theodore Beza about another responsibility of another friend who had died, and he took those children under his care, whether he was particular, he, was, he took them under his care. So you get this idea of whenever there's a gospel movement, a revival, there's also a great compassion for kids, for widows, and for orphans. At the Great Awakening, George Whitfield 
was a massive promoter and fundraiser for orphanages. This is from Benjamin Franklin's uh, autobiography. Here's what he says, because he was friends with Whitfield, but there's no indication that Benjamin Franklin's a Christian. In fact, Whitfield tries to get him. And Benjamin Franklin loves Whitfield because Whitfield's sermons sell like crazy. So Whitfield makes a ton of money for Benjamin Franklin. He's a publisher, and you print anything George Whitfield says, and it goes viral. Like, you make tons of money on it. So they have this fun interaction between Benjamin Franklin and George Whitfield. And George Whitfield keeps trying to get Benjamin Franklin to become a Christian, Benjamin Franklin resists it over and over and over again, but he likes him because he makes money for him. And here's what Benjamin Franklin has to say about George Whitfield and some of his orphanage work. He says this, Mr. Whitfield preached up his charity and made large collections and his eloquence had a wonderful power over the hearts and of the, persons, of the purses of the hearers. <laughs> so he's great at laying out a case and getting people to give to the cause. For which I myself was an instance. I thought I would have been better to have built a house here in Philadelphia. He had other ideas than Whitfield. But he was resolute in his project, rejected my counsel, and I therefore refused to contribute to his orphanage project. I happened uh, soon after to attend one of his sermons, in the course of which I perceived that he intended to finish with a call for a collection. And I silently resolved that he would get nothing from me. As I proceeded, I began to soften and concluded that I would at least give my copper coins. On another stroke of his oratory, he made me ashamed of that and determined that I should give the silver ones as well. And he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly to the collector's dish, gold and all. But this call, this Christian call to not only believe the gospel, but to care for the least of these went together. And even Benjamin Franklin and all his resolve and all his hardness of heart Refusing the gospel and yet unable to not care about these widows and these orphans, particularly the orphans, as Whitsfield put it out. Let me go ahead and answer question number. So question number two, is visiting orphans really central to Christianity? It always has been. It always has been a feature of knowing Jesus and being under his lordship. To call Jesus Lord and to not care for the least of these is not a true statement. And so, I'd like to invite my friend Damon to come up and just answer question number three. He'll do it much shorter than I did. But since this is on God's heart, since this is a feature of who we are as believers, I would like Damon to just lay out some options for us about what it looks like to visit widows and orphans in our time. Damon is, uh, is in charge of South Dakota Kids Belong. I'll let you introduce yourself, but Damon's a good friend, former pastor now. He and his wife do Kids Belong full-time and... Uh, I'll turn it over to you, brother, and then you can close us out. Thank you so much, Pastor Josh. Um, Just wanted to say thank you so much um, to him. I think you guys have a great leader, and so let's give him a round of applause for just his faithfulness. Appreciate it. So how's everybody doing? Doing good? Jumping jacks? Do we need to get up and move a little? A little bit? Yeah, that was a blessing. I think if you could send me those notes, I would enjoy that. <laughs> so that was really well done. Um, and also, I just wanted to say thank you to the stirring that's already happening here. Um, when we come and share this, um, I don't know all the things that the Lord's doing behind the scenes in your heart, and but Jesus does. So I, I'm gonna just I'm gonna assume. God has some movement in this crowd and things are happening. And I just want to say 
thank you for that. And, and it's probably organically happening within your church, um, and that's awesome to take care of vulnerable children and each other. And so with that, let's just dive right in. Um, you see, when a child goes into a foster care, into the system, something went wrong, correct? We can all agree on that. And there are typically three outcomes for that child. One, they are placed in a foster home or a kinship family until the parent can heal, and then they are reunified with their birth parents, with their parents. And in the state of South Dakota, that happens about 70% of the time. And I know there's pushback and there's some hard dynamics with that, but if you think of it from, if you're a Christian foster parent, you have the opportunity to see the gospel redeem and restore a family that is hurting. And I think that's God's provision in that. And so that's really, that, that's one outcome. The second, if reunification is not possible, the parents' rights are terminated and the children in foster care need an adoptive family or a parent. So they will need to be adopted. And then the third, if they are not reunified and they are not adopted, they will transition out of the foster care system and into adulthood. And a lot of times this doesn't, you, not only they don't, they don't have that family support, I don't know if you guys at 18 years old can just handle the world, especially without the foundation of a family, but they are launched into this crazy world and they are more susceptible to some of the, the 10 major social wounds in our society. For example, Yeah, that's awesome. Sorry. Um, yeah, so for example, suicide. Adolescents in foster care were nearly four times more likely to have attempted suicide than other youth of their age. Sex trafficking. Statistics vary widely, but nearly all of them and the majority say that of child and sex trafficking victims, anywhere from 50 to 90% have been in foster care. Addiction. For kids who aged out of foster care, one-third stated that they currently had drug alcohol problems and half admit to using drugs illegally since leaving the system. Trauma, mental health. One in four will experience PTSD in their lifetime, more than twice the rate of U.S. veterans in the, that go to war. You see... As Christians, when we engage in foster care, you're really bringing the gospel to one of the most destructive social wounds in our society to help our community heal with the power of Jesus Christ. To further understand this, I want to show some imagery that'll explain this. If you go to the bullseye. So you see here, this image, you have three circles. It represents three people. In the middle of the bullseye, you have what we call the hero. And yes, a lot of times people hear hero, and they think it's the foster parent or the adoptive parent. Well, you'd be wrong. The hero is the children. These children are the hero because they are the ones thrusted into a situation outside of their control and probably experiencing more trauma and difficulty in the first years of their life than many of us will experience in a lifetime. They are the heroes to the story, by God's grace. 
And then around the outer circle of them are the healers. Now these healers, these are the foster, kinship, and adoptive parents. So kinship is a relative that takes care of a child when a family is in crisis. They open their homes and their heart to children to help them heal and thrive. And I, you can always think of this as it's a discipleship. You get to take a child in. You get to care for them. You get to love them tangibly, living out to visit widows and orphans. And then you get to present. You have opportunities to share the good news with them and love on them. And then when, when Christ comes into the, those areas, it creates healing. And when kids heal and families heal, they can thrive because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then around the healers, you have the helpers. We know that not everyone is called to foster and adopt. And I don't want anybody to get the sense of any guilt when you see this. But we have found that everybody can do something. So these are people and entities that support the foster, adoptive, or kinship family. And that ultimately, when you support them, it trickles down to the kids. So when a foster parent hangs in there a little longer, it creates stability for the kids in care. And that stability creates healing, and it helps that child thrive. So everybody has a role and an opportunity to support. And ultimately, when we engage in this issue, God starts working, and you start seeing community heal. Some of the hardest parts start healing and thriving the next slide, you see the map. This is South Dakota. I probably don't have to explain that, right? It's pretty obvious. So in DSS, there are seven regions. It's divided, in, it's, it's divided into seven regions. And right in the middle, you have region three and four, so that yellow and red. And, then, and so that's, that's one of the most needs in our state. And then you have region one which is over on the east side, on the left, west side. Man, I'm directionally not oriented. So, <laughs> and so you have region, and that's Rapid City. And so Rapid City has one of the biggest needs in our state. We can go to the next slide. You see, as of August 31st, there was 500 children in foster care and only 101 licensed foster parents. We typically do not get the statistics of how many kids need families and need adoptive families, but there's children here. And so this is it. This is the problem. We can go to the next slide. There it is. There's way too many heroes and not enough foster and adoptive parents and then support around those parents. This is the essence of the problem. And this starts nationwide, statewide, right into our own backyards, right here in Pennington County. But there's hope. I think if we can all come together, and I think it's a beautiful thing, this issue will cross denominations, barriers, different people groups to help children thrive. Because there is a solution. The solution is you. We can go to the next slide. There are more than enough Christians in this town. There's more than enough churches to meet the demand right now. Historically, the church has been the primary avenue to care for vulnerable children, as Pastor Josh said. 
for kids who need homes, who need families. And I think it's time that we rise to the occasion and be the Christians. I, I like how he was saying it's not just like how we add that. It's, in, it's an essence of who we are to care for the most vulnerable parts of our society. It reflects God's glory. And it is time. And I've been praying for almost four or five years for, for just a movement in, in the heart of God's people to solve this problem. And, I, and we've seen headway and we've seen churches and that's why we're so thankful to be here today because I think God is really stirring his people to engage in the mission. And so to get involved, right? That's the practical part. Here's three ways to get involved. And two of them are gonna be obvious. I'm gonna unfold one a little more. Become a foster parent. I know that's jumping off the deep end, right? Like, holy buckets, we're jumping off the cliff right into it. It's crazy. But if God is leading you to, I would say take the step into the unknown. It's a faith step. And it's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. But there's going to be supernatural joy when you step in obedience. So, so I want to be clear. This isn't guilt. This isn't like, oh, I feel bad. We should. It's, it's that inspiration because you love Christ and he's putting something in your heart and he's asking you to do it. And that's the obedience. The next way to get involved is adoption. There's kids in our state right now who need forever families. You're not guaranteed, once you say, I want to adopt from the foster care system, to get that certain child or to even get a child. So there is a little uncomfortability, but you can step in and become a foster parent saying, I'm willing to do whatever God wants. And in, our, in America, sometimes we have struggles with certain steps of faith because we have such structure and able to control our outcomes so much. And in this space, this is God-ordained, and when you step into it, it's really up to him. And it's true faith, because faith, we can't see it, but we trust it, right? It's not tangible, but we know it. And so you step out in faith in these areas. And then the third, and this is a little more of getting involved, and we've seen maybe some communities will jump in, and you'll get too many foster and adoptive parents, and you don't have enough support, and so they leave out the back end, right? So, so do not downplay the reality that the support piece is vital for a community to thrive in this. And so the third way to get involved is support a foster or adoptive parent, and I am going to add in kinship um, to that if you know people in your community. And so here's two things. You can organically do this. So if you know a foster parent or an adoptive parent or someone caring for children that is not, that's, out, that's not biologically theirs, you can just organically engage that because you know them. The second part, you can formalize this. So you as a church, you guys can set up systems and processes to ensure that you care for people who have children that are foster or adopted, and you can care for people outside of your church that are foster and adoptive parents, and you can use it as an outreach. And then, so you can create something, or you can just leverage what you're doing. So what do you guys do? You know, what's an outreach? Can you just say, hey, we, we make meals. Why don't we make that for a local foster parent? You know, what does that look like for you guys? So don't, you know, sometimes you don't have to create the wheel. You just say, oh, we do that. Why don't we leverage it? And it's a simple to do. And so let me dive into this. So if you want to look at creating something, I'm going to sh share a little bit about RAP. If we want to go to the next slide. Oh, is this a, did we get mixed up? Yeah, that's all right. That's not a big deal. So RAP, right? So RAP, RAP is this 
system. It's more of a, you, you need a leader, a point of contact who can engage a foster or adoptive parent. And so RAP's an acronym. My wife, I should almost have her come up here and do this. What, you wanna do that? Yeah, she's the RAP director. She'll just wrap it out for you guys. So <laughs> it's a different acronym. Okay. I was about to go like this because he's, um, I talk about this all the time. So um, with RAP, um, we call it a RAP team. And um, it's not rapping like rapping like a song. It's W-R-A-P. Um, w stands for words of encouragement. So it can be a sending a text to a foster parent saying, hey, I'm praying for you today, thinking about you, just lifting you up as you're struggling through whatever it is or just thinking about you. Um, it can be a message through email. It can be um, calling them and, and just talking to them over the phone. So sending um, words of encouragement to a foster parent. R stands for respite. Um, providing a date night for a foster couple um, once a month. That would be huge. Um, just two hours so they can get away. Um, we have lots of foster parents that have more than five children in their home. Some have up to 11. And so having a time where they don't have to take all the babies to the store, when they go to the store, if they could just drop their kids off or have somebody come over and do respite um, when they go to the grocery store, that would be huge. Um, respite, you do not have to be background, not background check, you do not have to be licensed as a foster parent to do respite. So when we set up a RAP team, we can get you background checked, and then you can provide respite for that foster family. A stands for acts of service. Um, that's really providing a meal or running and grabbing groceries for the family or doing laundry for the family, um, different things like that. Maybe um, providing, if you have a lawn business, you can come in and say, hey, we'll mow your lawn once a week um, while you're taking care of these kids. And um, that can be A for acts of service and then P is for prayer. Um, so every foster family needs prayer. The kids in their home need prayer. Um, and we, we have some great friends that um, are fostering and when they take these children in their home, it's like this, um, these kids have been exposed to a lot of dark things um, where they've come from. And so when you bring them into a Christian home that's exposing them to Jesus and, and praying over them, it's, it, there's an attack happening and they really need people to pray for them and pray for those kids. And, and so prayer is huge. So if you want to set up um, a rap team here at this church, um, I'd be the person that, to help you do that. Um, and I'll be back back there to talk about it. So um, we need five families to set up a rap team um, and one leader. Okay. Thank you. Get the better half up here, right? You had to do it right. All right. So there it is. I'm going to start wrapping this up for you guys. Um, you know, you see, you see the problem, you know, you see the solution. And I, I do think it's this beautiful call to get involved in this space. I, I, I just want to share that, you know, so we, I'm the president or executive director, whatever you want to say for South Dakota Kids Belong, and there's some innovative campaigns happening right now in your state that this, the governor is asking the church to get involved. So you have a wonderful opportunity to step into this space as Christians. And so I want to encourage you with that because I think when the church rises up and fulfills that need, you're, God is going to be glorified right? People will start saying, why? 
why are you doing this? And you can say, it's because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think when the church steps in as, as the beautiful brides of Christ and glorifies his kingdom, people will be drawn to his salvation and come to know him and worship him. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And so if you want to get involved, like my wife said, feel free to come and visit us at the table. And I'm going to close this up in some prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much just for the hearts. Thank you so much for, for your son, Jesus Christ, who came down into this dirty place, being perfect in every way and dying for us, Lord, and, and, and rejuvenating us, having your spirit live inside of us to do things that we are not capable of doing because of the strength and the power that is in, within Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you do something supernatural amongst your people in this church and throughout the churches in this county, out throughout the state and through the country and really through the world to, to be the bride of Christ that cares for vulnerable. And I lift that up in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.